Thanks, Jim. Uh, we have just four death notices, and I'll go ahead and quickly get to sports. Uh, but we have Alan Gillespie, 62, from Cheriton, passed away on May 23rd. Jeff Hopkin, 55, of Des Moines, passed also on the 23rd. Dorothy, Dorothy Elizabeth Hunterdoss, 95, of Indianola, passed away on May 24th. And Robin Rogers, 47, from Des Moines, passed away on the 21st. With that, we'll move into sports. And this first article from Alyssa Hertel of the Des Moines Register. Looks like high school soccer. Valley's Galloway leads on and off the pitch. Avery Galloway is an all-state midfielder on a West Des Moines Valley girls soccer team loaded with talent year in and year out. But her senior season was far from what she imagined. During a club soccer game in September, Galloway remembers planting her foot and hesitating. That was enough to tear her right ACL, effectively benching her for most of her high school soccer season. She has played in five games, starting four of them. Quote, I've torn both of mine, so I know exactly what she's going through, Valley coach Rob Chapman said. It's a tough battle, and then the toughest part of it is the mental aspect, mentally overcoming it. Chapman knew that Galloway had the personality and the work ethic to get back out on the field, but the timing of her injury couldn't have been worse for many reasons. I had a meniscus tear a couple months before that, and I think I probably came back a little too soon, Galloway said. The first question was, am I going to be able to play high school soccer? My senior year has been something that I've looked forward to since I was a little baby freshman. In the moment, there was a lot going on for me. I was trying to figure out where I was going to college. School was starting to pick up quite a bit. That time was really stressful for me because I didn't know if I was going to be able to do everything that I wanted to do this season. Losing most of her senior soccer season was stressful enough. And then Galloway decided to go a less traditional and more exclusive route for college. While she was attempting to return to the pitch, Galloway was also waiting to hear if she would receive an official appointment to the United States Naval Academy. If you'd have asked me a year ago where I was planning on going to college, I probably would have told you somewhere on the East Coast, smaller school, Galloway said, but I literally had no idea about the service academies. Galloway doesn't come from a military family. Her closest connection to someone in the service is her great-uncle who served in the Vietnam War. So the service academies weren't at the top of her list when she began looking at colleges and universities. But one of Galloway's school counselors, Eric Trainer, recommended that she consider the service academies. His son is a student at the Naval Academy and thought that it would be a good fit for Galloway, who wants to use her language skills in her career. Attending a service academy is a major commitment. Not only would Galloway sign up for four years of higher education, but she would be commissioned for a minimum of five years post-graduation. She decided to test the waters last summer. Galloway enrolled in Summer Seminar in Annapolis, Maryland, which introduces potential applicants to life at the Naval Academy and allows potential applicants to see what the Academy has to offer. For six days last June, she experienced a piece of what her first year at the Academy would be like. I actually loved it, Galloway said. Loved the experience, loved the people, 
loved the school. I was sold on applying. I went through the whole process and then received my official appointment at the beginning of April. In addition to the community she found, Galloway chose the academy because it offers her a real opportunity to use her foreign languages in a professional setting. That's something Galloway has aspired to do since before any service academies were an option. The Valley Senior can track her language skills back to kindergarten. Galloway is a native English speaker, and she picked up her second language, Spanish, starting in preschool. She attended the Bergman Academy in Des Moines and credits one of her teachers there for instilling a love of foreign languages in Galloway at a young age. I was really blessed with the teacher I had when I was really young, Galloway said. He introduced us to a really interesting technique. Total physical response is what it's called. Total physical response is a method of teaching language by using physical movement. For Galloway, it was easier for her to pick up a new language through this technique because she found it more interesting and engaging than the standard way languages were taught. Galloway said her mother was also a promoter of learning languages. So once Galloway had a better grasp of Spanish, she picked up French in fifth grade. Then about three years ago, she began learning Chinese, adding a fourth language to her repertoire. Even before Galloway knew she wanted to attend a service academy, she was strategic in her choice of languages. I didn't know I wanted to go to the service academy route when I started learning Chinese, Galloway said, but I did know that I wanted to use my language. So I opted for Chinese just because of our current geopolitical situation. Galloway's languages alone aren't the only reason that she is built to succeed at the Naval Academy. While several teenage athletes could get discouraged by a potentially career-ending injury, Galloway approached the challenge as a learning opportunity. Obviously, if I could go back, I would have torn my ACL, Galloway said, but I think there are a lot of really valuable life lessons that I've learned from this experience that I'm able to take and carry on to the next phase of my life. The way that Galloway approached her injury and how she could still be a part of the Valley team, albeit in a different capacity, is part of the reason she is one of the Tigers' three captains. It's also why Chapman knows that Galloway will succeed in her next venture with the Navy. She's missed the majority of her season, but she's taken on a different role, Chapman said. She's still the captain, you can hear her on the sidelines, and she's constantly coaching her teammates and being positive, and she's truly a leader. I said it at our banquet the other day, she's going to be leading a bunch of people one day, and I seriously, I'd go into battle with her. Jim? Thanks, Ben. Very interesting. Uh, I'm going to turn to uh, a football story uh, written by... uh, Randy Peterson, a sports columnist for the Des Moines Register and USA Today Network. Iowa State late football additions must cram for season. Uh, Matt Campbell picked up a transfer portal recruit Sunday night, a defensive lineman to help at a position that needs as much backing as it can get. Considering standouts Will McDonald and MJ Anderson are not around. Remember this name, Tobeki Okale from Auburn. I don't know how good he is or will become, but he's got three seasons of eligibility after seeing action in just a few plays in one game during two seasons in the Southeast Conference. When it comes to the portal, Campbell has 
way more hits than misses. He's kind of like his basketball coach buddy, T.J. Otzelberger, in that respect, only to a lesser extent. Tobucky was recruited heavily out of high school, Campbell said, at the Cyclone Tailgate Tour Stop in Marshalltown Monday. We had a great relationship, not initially great enough to swing his decision toward Iowa State. But for Campbell, all's well that ends well. He'll be one of at least four transfer portal recruits on the 2023 Cyclones team that opens the season September 2nd against Northern Iowa at Jack Trice Stadium. When Ocali arrives, he'll be part of a roster that includes Missouri transfer linebacker Zach Lovett, Colorado transfer receiver Dimitri Stanley, and Stanford transfer running back A.J. Harris. He'll be the 13th or so four-year transfer portal recruit that Campbell and his staff have received since they arrived at Ames before the 2016 season. If he's not the latest calendar-wise addition to the roster, then he's certainly among them. Linebacker Colby Reedy announced his transfer from uh, Delaware in December 2021. Kicker Andrew Mevis came from Fordham in the, to the Cyclones in December 2020. Anderson announced his transfer from Minnesota in December 2021. Lovett and Harris did it in December 2022. Stanley in March 2022, and now Ocali just a few days before the June reporting date. A high priority for us, and obviously through the recruiting process, Tobeki initially went a different way, Campbell said. He was kind of a late entry in the portal at the end. Cyclones pick up junior college quarterback Tanner Hughes. But this just in. The Register's Alyssa Hertel reported Tuesday afternoon that Butte College quarterback Tanner Hughes was transferring to Campbell's program. Butte is a junior college uh, in California. That makes uh, four Cyclone quarterbacks on the roster. Hunter Deckers, uh, Rocco Beck, J.J. Cole, and now Hughes. Four quarterbacks on the same roster. Iowa State had five last season, including walk-ons. The Cyclones had four on scholarship in 2021. So four in 2023 is plausible, although it would seem Hughes has a lot to learn and not much time to learn it. Campbell's portal guys thus far have mostly contributed, and that's the takeaways from the program's third four-year transfer acquisition since the out-of-character four-and-eight season of 2022. Let's assume Ocali finds the field in 2023. Let's assume he's solid. Let's assume he's a quick learner, given the lateness he's joining the program. Let's assume a lot, considering Campbell offered him a scholarship when he played high school ball in Missouri. Mighty Georgia offered a scholarship after Campbell. Auburn played follow the Cyclone leader, too. How quickly can a new quarterback learn Iowa State's system? 
We talked about Okali's approximately 24 hours before the news landed that Iowa State has a new quarterback. I wondered what the program just a couple weeks before most of the 2023 recruits start arriving on campus. That depends on position. I get that. A defensive lineman such as uh, Okali likely can pick up the intricacies of defensive coordinator John Hecox's schemes quicker than a quarterback in an equal amount of time. I would presume, presume anyway. So Okali just might have chance to contribute soon. For us, we've always identified those guys with a 6'6", 290-pound frame, Campbell said, of his newest defensive lineman. For us, those are the guys that are high priority. Tabeki has worked through five defensive position coaches in, 18, in one and a half years at Auburn. So for him, it's been a little uh, chaotic. I think he was looking for colleges and culture and fit this time around. We're excited to have him and his family as part of the program. How much he plays will start revealing itself even before fall camp starts in August. You really use the months of June and July as great teaching opportunities, Campbell said. My hope is whatever 110-man roster comes into fall camp, that we're giving every one of those young men every opportunity to compete for playing time. For us, it's always been that the first two to three weeks of fall camp or of identifying what the depth chart looks like, where we're at, where we're going, will have to be great teachers in June and July, not just for the new defensive linemen, but also for the newcomer quarterback. Thanks, Jim. And from Chad Lesko of the Des Moines Register, Iowa's McCaffrey gets coaching start with entry-level NBA job. A random connection at an Name, image, and likeness, the NIL, event in Des Moines, ultimately planted the seed for Connor McCaffrey to land his first professional job. McCaffrey, the former Iowa basketball and baseball player whose father is the Hawkeyes' head basketball coach, has signed an offer to join the staff of the NBA's Indiana Pacers, he told the Des Moines Register on Thursday. Ultimately, McCaffrey wants to pursue a career in coaching. His role with the Pacers as a team assistant will include a little bit of everything. I'll play dummy defense, run the scout team, help coaches on film stuff, help on video projects if they need, scouting reports if they need, McCaffrey said. It's kind of all hands on deck. Whatever you're asked to do, be ready to do it. It's a way in. It's an entry-level job. You've got to work hard and work your way up. That's obviously what I want to do. The professional future of McCaffrey, who will turn 25 in July, was always going to be intriguing. He came to Iowa as an accomplished two-sport athlete from Iowa City West and was on a good track to enter the Major League Baseball draft in 2020 before the COVID-19 pandemic canceled the college baseball season and shook up everything. McCaffrey, who excelled in the classroom as well, wound up battling injuries and ultimately focusing on basketball, where he would play for father Fran McCaffrey for another three years, six in total. His 166th and final Iowa basketball game was a first-round NCAA tournament loss to Auburn in March, 
and he left as the program's all-time leader in assist-to-turnover ratio. It was during his final season at a dinner in Des Moines that Connor McCaffrey spoke with Kevin Bannister, an area businessman. Bannister had a connection to Pacers general manager Chad Buchanan, and McCaffrey reached out and got Buchanan on the phone to learn about what it would take to get started in coaching. That conversation led to an opportunity with the Pacers, and McCaffrey was excited to snap it up. Because of a recent surgery on his left shooting wrist, McCaffrey cannot fully participate in basketball activities. His new job will be somewhat similar to a student manager in college, but paid, of course, so he won't get started with the Pacers until September, when players return from their summer break. McCaffrey first injured the wrist in a December 11th home game versus Wisconsin. I'm really excited. I want to get away and try to learn from someone else, somewhere else, McCaffrey said. I've always been under my dad's shadow and tutelage. Now, learning from someone like Coach Rick Carlisle and the assistants, they have their, they're all good basketball minds. I'm just going to try to take everything in. Thanks, Ben, for the update on Connor. Uh, I have a couple uh, articles here. The first one on college softball. Uh, DMAC splits a pair at Junior College World Series. Uh, the Des Moines Area Community College softball team went one and one on Wednesday at the National Junior College Athletic Association Division II World Series in Spartanburg, South Carolina. The Bears, uh, 50 wins, 11 losses, <clears throat> lost to Lewisburg 4-1 before beating Danville 2-0. Sidney Kennedy pitched a shutout in the victory over Danville, striking out nine and allowing three hits in seven innings. She improved to 24 wins, four losses in the circle. Uh, Kendall Clark had a hit and an RBI for DMAC. Emily Aids and Amaya Snyder had two hits apiece for DMAC in the loss to Lewisburg. And then we have uh, some news from uh, Iowa Women's College Basketball. Davis returning to Iowa as Director of Player Development. This written by Dargan Southard, uh, writer for Des Moines Register and USA Today. <clears throat> Excuse me. Tania Davis is coming home. The former Iowa women's basketball point guard and 1,000-point scorer has been named the Hawkeyes' new director of player development. Lisa Bluter announced Wednesday that Davis takes over for the departing uh, Catherine Reynolds who was recently named the president commissioner of the new Northwoods Softball League. I am absolutely thrilled to welcome Tania Davis back to Iowa City, Bluter said in a school release. Tania was a tremendous player who has now gained great coaching experience. It's so exciting to know she will now impact our program once again as our director of player development. She will be a pivotal piece in our day-to-day -day operation, mainly working with our players to assist them in becoming strong leaders and role models in the community. Davis finished her Iowa career 2015 to 2019 with 1,007 career points as a multi-year starter during a Hawkeye run that first revitalized the program into the powerhouse it is now. During Davis's senior year, which ended with a Big Ten tournament title 
and an Elite Eight appearance, she rebounded from a second torn ACL the season prior and notched career highs in points, rebounds, assists, and three-pointers en route to all-conference honors. After graduating from Iowa in 2019, Davis had a two-year stint at Clemson as a women's basketball graduate assistant. She then moved on to Omaha, where Davis was an assistant coach for two seasons. Thanks, Jim. And now to high school tennis. Waukee Northwest brings home Class 2A state championships. This from Raven Moore of the Iowa City Press Citizen. The Iowa High School State Boys Tennis Tournaments were held in Iowa City's Hawkeye Tennis and Recreation Center, Class 2A, and Waterloo's Burns Park, Class 1A, this week. Waukee Northwest pulled off a sweep in 2A, and Decora and Pella made the biggest waves in 1A. Here's a recap of the action, which wrapped up Wednesday. After taking third place at last season's state tournament, Waukee Northwest junior Caden Taylor made the leap to first place, outlasting Ankeny Centennial's Caleb Peterson in the final 6-3, 6-3. Taylor, the first Northwest player to win a singles championship, said all of his hard work has proven to be worth it. It feels great to be a part of history, Taylor said. I've been working really hard over the past few years. So being able to apply that to today's tournament is a huge accomplishment. Quinn Monson of Waukee finished third. The Waukee Northwest sophomore duo of Kellen Poet and Jake Nelson completed the school's sweep of the 2A event, beating Pleasant Valley's Aaron Ingram and Folu Edukunli in the doubles final. Scores were 6-3, 6-7, After dropping the second set, Nelson said they had to get back to basics. Going into that set, we knew that we had to reset, Nelson said. We had to start fresh and go back to doing what we did in the first set because that was what was working. After he and Nelson earned Northwest's first doubles championship, Proyot said, he hopes the milestone can be a trendsetter for the program. We hope that with this win, we start a legacy of championships and winning. Since we won a singles championship today too, Proyot said, we are hoping that next week, we can win the team title as well. Luke Berg and Beck Sizzle of West Des Moines Valley finished third. 82 miles north in Waterloo, Class 1A players were competing for their own state championships. Decora's Caden Branham came away with the 1A singles championship after beating Cedar Rapids Xavier's Charlie the Grand in the finals, 6-4-6-1. North Polk's Ethan Moon finished third. Pella's Jack Briggs and Joshua Roosboom won the doubles championship after beating Decora's Landon Baker and Daniel Sprad in the final 6-1-6-0. Dubuque Waylert's Charlie Curtis and Rowan Martinow finished third. Thanks, Ben. Uh, for all of you uh, National Football League fans, uh, <clears throat> have a, an update uh, for a rule change for this coming season. This written uh, by Jared Bell, who's a columnist for USA Today. NFL rule change isn't a surefire, surefire score. Uh, for every action, there's a reaction. That theme is clearly attached to the new college-like rule that NFL owners adopted on Tuesday that allows for a fair catch on kickoffs. If you followed the patterns in recent years after CTE became part of the football lexicon, and since the NFL was hammered a billion ways in the 
class action lawsuit that alleged negligence by the league in dealing with concussion risk, it is hardly a surprise that it has come to this. In lieu of completely removing kickoffs from the game, it's another rule in the name of safety. Kickoffs, after all, are the type of play that results in the highest rate of concussions. And the numbers, according to league data, have trended upward the past two years. We can't stand by and do nothing, said Jeff Miller, whose domain as an NFL executive vice president includes oversight of health and safety initiatives. Miller, mindful of legal context, was brutally honest in expressing the motivation for the new rule, adopted for a one-year trial that will set up the receiving team at the 25-yard line following a fair catch on a kickoff. Last season, there were 20 concussions league-wide suffered during kickoffs according to the NFL. Earlier this year, Troy Vincent, the NFL's Executive Vice President for Game Operations, said that 10 of the concussions occurred as players made tackles, and the other uh, 10 came while making blocks. So as you might expect with high-speed collisions, the fallout happens both ways. With the new rule, Miller maintained that the league's modeling projects that the concussion rate on kickoffs will drop 15%. He also said that the number of kickoffs returned is projected to drop from 38% to 31%. So call the new rule a noble cause, but the cause may not produce the desired effect. Beware of unintended consequences that could add to injury risk. As soon as the measure was passed by team owners, you can believe there are kickers and special teams coaches across the league who are largely opposed to the rule change, working to create an advantage that might offset safety initiatives. And with that, an invitation for more of the chaos on kickoff returns that the rulemakers want to decrease. The increased rate of concussions on kickoffs could be traced, at least in part, to kickers floating the football in the air to allow coverers more, more time to attack returners. Theoretically, the new rule would reduce the high-speed collisions in those circumstances, but perhaps not if the fair catch isn't called early in the kickoff. It's also apparent that the skill level of kickers and the speed of coverers is much more advanced on the pro level than in the college game. So the art of kickoff coverage may include the task of trying to harass uh, returners to mishandle a kick they are trying to fair catch. There's also a chance of more squib kicks, which leads to more high-speed collisions and chaos. Rich McKay, chairman of the league's competitive committee, pointed to a decrease in squib kicks on the college level. 2.9% of kicks were squibbed before the fair catch rule was implemented on the college level in 2018, 1.8% afterward, as an expectation of what could happen on the NFL level. McKay, the Atlantic Falcons president, downplayed the sentiment from coaches who despised the rule. 
Change always means you have to look at things differently, McKay said. I get that. But in our case, we're looking to be driven by the health and safety data, and that's what's going to inform us as far as making rules proposals. Still, coaches have suggested other measures that might have better promoted uh, safety relative to the fair catch rule. Among them, lowering the kicking tee, which would de decrease the trajectory on kickoffs, uh, moving the spot of the kickoff back to the 30-yard line, as was the case for 20 years before it was moved to the 35-yard line in 2010. McKay knows that this hardly, uh, this is hardly the finish line when it comes to kickoffs. It will have helped to have an open mind, which might involve embracing some of the suggestions from coaches. In the meantime, the one-year trial could underscore more patterns and ignite more debate. Are we headed to a game without kickoffs? In recent years, that question has grown in significance. As it stands now, the kickoff remains, and McKay, speaking for himself and not his committee, wants it to stay that way. That could mean borrowing from the spring leagues, the XFL or USFL, to adopt tweaks such as positioning the kickoff and return teams closer and further downfield to lessen collisions after the ball is kicked off. There's something to that, McKay said. We've got to understand what the implications are. But if we can make a more competitive play out of a play that's becoming more ceremonial, we should always do that. The bottom line objective, McKay contends, is this. You don't want this play out of the game. Now just make it safer. Thanks, Jim. And now from the Associated Press, Mahomes focused on legacy, not making money. Patrick Mahomes would rather win Super Bowls than a contest to make the most money. That doesn't mean the Kansas City Chiefs quarterback hasn't seen what's been happening across the NFL. Mahomes signed a 10-year, $450 million extension in 2020 that set the bar for quarterbacks, but it already has been surpassed several times over. The Eagles' is Jalen Hurts signed a 5-year, $255 million deal April 17th, that briefly made him the NFL's highest-paid player, until Lamar Jackson signed a five-year, $260 million deal with the Ravens a mere 10 days later. That immediately raised the question about whether Mahomes would want to redo his contract. Me, my agent, and the team always keep open communication, and we always try to do whatever is best for the team, and obviously I want to do what is best for me as well. Mahomes said after a voluntary workout Wednesday at the team's facility. But I've always said I'm about legacy and winning rings more than making money at this moment. I know we keep communication. We see what's going on around the league, he continued. But at the same time, I'll never do anything that will hurt us from keeping the great players around me. It's about teetering on that line. Still, the deal Mahomes signed just three years ago already has slipped to seventh in terms of annual value, behind far less accomplished QBs such as the Broncos' Russell Wilson, Kyler Murray of the Cardinals, and the Browns' Deshaun Watson. Everybody wants to get paid a lot of money when they think they're the best at their craft, Mahomes said, but when you look at the greats, they find that sweet spot, 
where they make a lot of money, but they keep great players around them. Mahomes is coming off perhaps the best year of his career, throwing for a league-leading 5,250 yards and 41 touchdowns with only nine, excuse me, 12 interceptions. He was chosen for his fifth straight Pro Bowl, voted the AP's Player of the Year for the second time, and in February helped Kansas City rally in the second half for a Super Bowl victory over Hertz and the Eagles. Given those accomplishments, it's hardly surprising that many are curious whether another contract is in the works, especially with Joe Burrow of the Bengals expected to reset the market with a new contract before the start of the season. You just want to not hurt other quarterbacks when their contracts come up, Mahomes said. You want to keep pushing, but it's not about being the highest paid guy. It's not about making a ton of money. I've made enough money where I'll be set for life. But at the same time, you have to find that line where you're making good money and keeping great players around you. Mahomes spent the first part of the offseason program working out with wide receivers and tight ends at his home in Texas. But he was back at the Chiefs training facility this week for the start of more structured voluntary workouts. In between, Mahomes jetted his way to the Met Gala, the Kentucky Derby, and the Formula One race in Miami. I always wanted to go to the Kentucky Derby, but I wanted to go after we won the Super Bowl. And in 2019, we had COVID happening, Mahomes said. It's just picking and choosing what you can do. But now we're back in football and locking down and getting your body in the right spot. I have a few more trips, but I've kind of settled down this offseason. Chiefs coach Andy Reid said he had no reason to believe Mahomes wouldn't be there. He's all in and going after it, Reid said Wednesday. And he challenges himself and he challenges those around him to be great on both sides of the ball. Everything is alive out there and moving fast. And as head coach, I appreciate that. Thanks, Ben. And uh, another update on some uh, professional uh, football news. Uh, What's the holdup in Commander's Deal? Uh, This written by Jarrett Bell of USA Today. The Dan Snyder issue continued to hover above NFL team owners during their spring meetings this week, albeit in a different form and fashion with the pending sale of the Washington Commanders hanging in the balance. It wasn't too long ago that owners were peppered with questions about whether they would vote the controversial Snyder out of their ranks. Now it's about getting the record sale of $6.05 billion to a group headed by Josh Harris to the finish line. Owners were nowhere close to approving the deal that was struck earlier this month, with the league's finance committee engaged in the process of vetting the deal, a process more complex than for uh, for most transactions, given the size of the transaction and the number of partners. No one in the know blinked at the suggestion that it could take months, not weeks. It depends on the Harris Group, independent Indianapolis Colts owner Jim Ursay told reporters. They know what the rules are. Translation, to comply with NFL ownership policies, it will likely take more equity. I would anticipate it being done, contended Dallas Cowboys owner Jerry Jones, who in 1989 leveraged his family's fortune to purchase the franchise, now valued at $8 billion by Forbes, 
for $150 million. The escalating franchise values are undoubtedly a huge factor, which at some point will likely prompt the NFL to explore accepting more creative financing to seal such deals. It's a highly doubtful that such a time is now, with sentiment uh, among at least some, if not many owners, that the next partners need to adhere to the same policies that they complied with to get in. Then again, Snyder has been such a thorn in the side for the league. It is conceivably tempting for fellow owners to bend the rules for the Harris Group in order to finally get rid of Snyder. Uh, Speculative is how Jones responded when such a question was asked. This is really inappropriate in my mind, Jones said. You have a very qualified buyer and you have, by his own admission, Dan and his family wanting to sell. And so you don't need to give what ifs beyond that. And I know enough to know there's enough quality, uh, qualifying aspects to the thing that this can get done. Okay, but when? Jones wouldn't etch out a timeline for final approval. Ursay, a fellow member of the league's finance committee, wouldn't rule out a target for the start of the regular season. I think that would be great to have a new ownership group in by the beginning of the season, Ursay said. That would be good. That's not an impossibility, but there's work to be done. We're not there yet. Funny how these things can turn out. Tom Brady was a central figure in one of the most controversial heartbreaks in Raiders history. The fumble that wasn't. Tuck rule call that enabled the New England Patriots to win the AFC Divisional Playoff game and remain alive for Brady's first Super Bowl journey. And now he's a part owner of the Raiders. Yeah, I got over it, Raiders owner Mark Davis told USA Today Sports. And I got over it with Franco Harris and the Immaculate Deception. In the end, as much as you want to hate them, it wasn't their fault. That came from the guys in the striped shirts and those guys in New York, but it was tough to get over for our fan base. Davis wouldn't disclose specifics of the ownership stake that Brady acquired. I can't really talk about it because of NDAs and stuff, but I'm absolutely excited, he said. Asked whether Brady will have input into football operations, Davis replied, I can't talk about that at this point in time. He has a job with Fox. We'll respect that. Beyond the since-abandoned tuck rule, it's striking in another sense that Brady has wound up as one of Davis's partners. On multiple occasions in recent years, reports linked Brady perhaps finishing his brilliant career as a quarterback with the silver and black. It has been more than a decade since the Jacksonville Jaguars appeared on Monday Night Football. Same for Sunday Night Football. Well, after winning the AFC South title and posting a thrilling comeback victory during the wildcard round of the playoffs last season, the Jaguars are scheduled for both of those primetime showcases this season. Jacksonville is slated to host the Cincinnati Bengals on Monday, December 4th, then the Baltimore Ravens on December 17th. The Jaguars will also appear on Amazon with a Thursday night tilt at New Orleans in Week 7. 
We've got three primetime games. I have enough brains to know that at least two of them are in that window where you can be flexed out, Jaguars owner Shad Khan told USA Today Sports. We'll have to perform or else. Khan supported the resolution passed this week that allows NFL offers uh, to uh, flex late-season Thursday night games on Amazon, which matches up to the option that has existed for years with NBC on Sunday nights. This season, late-season Monday night games on ESPN are also subject to flexible scheduling. Eight teams voted against the measure, with detractors maintaining that switching games, even with 28 days' notice for the Amazon games, is a disservice to in-station fans. With a potential superstar in young quarterback Trevor Lawrence, now paired with Coach Doug Peterson, beginning his second season at the helm, the Jaguars are also poised to become a bigger draw overseas. The Jaguars will also play games in London, the secondary market, in back-to-back weeks. The Cleveland Browns are working on details for a public tribute to Jim Brown to be held at First Energy Station Stadium. Brown's owner, Jimmy Aslam, said it's possible the ceremony will be held in early June. Before Brown died last week at 87, the team planned to place a market outside the uh, a marker outside the stadium to commemorate the Cleveland Summit in 1967, where Brown and other top athletes came together to support ostracized boxing champion Muhammad Ali. Thanks, Jim. This next article from the Associated Press, entitled Virgin Galactic Completes Final Test Flight Before Launching Customers, from Albuquerque, New Mexico. Virgin Galactic completed what is expected to be its final test flight Thursday before taking paying customers on brief trips to space, marking what the space tourism company described as a fantastic achievement in what has been a long road in commercial operations. Six of the company's employees, including two pilots, landed at Spaceport America in southern New Mexico after the short up-and-down flight that included a few minutes of weightlessness. It took about an hour for the mother ship to carry the space plane to an altitude of 44,500 feet, where it was released and fired its rocket motor to make the final push. Successful boost. We have reached space, Virgin Galactic tweeted. It reached an altitude of 54.2 miles before gliding back down to the runway, according to the company. Jamala Gilbert, who grew up in southern New Mexico and leads the company's internal communications, was among those on board who were evaluating what it will be like for paying customers. It was hard for her to put the experience into words, saying it probably will take a lifetime to process the sights and the feelings that fill those moments between the rocket igniting and the spaceship reaching its highest point. It was just this magnetic pull, she said in an interview. Once I started looking out, I could feel that I was floating. I could hear voices, but I couldn't stop looking at the planet and I couldn't look away. Fellow crew member Christopher Huey said it seems as if everything stopped when the spaceship was released from the carrier plane. You're just waiting for the rocket to light, said Huey, an aerospace engineer, and I think that moment had so much anticipation 
and I could have lived in that moment forever. Then came a little jostle with the firing of the rocket, and the crew were pinned to their seats as the G-forces kicked in. The flight came nearly two years after founder Richard Branson beat fellow billionaire and Amazon founder Jeff Bezos and rocket company Blue Origin into space. Bezos ended up flying nine days later from West Texas and Blue Origin has since launched several passenger trips. Federal aviation authorities banned Virgin Galactic launches after Branson's flight to investigate a mishap. Virgin Galactic has been working for more than a decade to send paying passengers on short space hops and in 2021 finally won the federal government's approval. The next step will be for Virginia Galactic to analyze data from Thursday's flight and inspect the planes and other equipment as the company prepares for commercial service, possibly as late as June. Virginia Galactic CEO Michael Coglazier has acknowledged the delays and missed deadlines over the years. But on Thursday, he said seeing the crew's reactions after landing gave him confidence in what the company has built so far. The initial commercial flight will include members of the Italian Air Force who will conduct experiments. Next will come customers who purchased tickets years ago for their chance at weightlessness aboard a winged spacecraft that launches from the belly of an airplane. About 800 tickets have been sold over the past decade, with the initial batch going for $200,000 each. Tickets now cost $450,000 per person. Virgin Galactic has reached space five times since 2018 and will be aiming for 400 flights per year from Spaceport America. After Branson's trip, the Federal Aviation Administration grounded flights as it investigated a problem that caused the rocket ship to veer off course during its descent back to its runway in the New Mexico desert. Virgin Galactic insisted at the time that Branson and others were never in any danger. The company made changes to its carrier airplane and the space plane. Branson joined a group of customers who watched Thursday's flight from Spaceport America. Huey, a senior manager with Virgin Galactic's flight sciences engineering team, said the company is ready for commercial service and will be expanding its fleet over the coming years. We're looking to scale up in a big way, he said, and the goal is to populate lots of spaceports with lots of spaceships and motherships, and send hundreds of people every year to space. Thanks, Ben. Uh, from the business section of USA Today, results for three companies show consumer trends. Inflation on necessities weighs on shoppers. Uh, this written by Ann O. Inazio. Um, and inflation on necessities like groceries, remain stubbornly high. The well-heeled consumer appears to be still spending while uh, lower-income shoppers continue to cut back their purchases, according to the latest batch of earnings reports. Ralph Lauren Corp., uh, which sells $300 sweaters and $500 handbags, reported a surprise increase in revenue in the latest uh, fiscal quarter, while Dollar Tree cut its annual profit outlook on shopper increased focus on groceries and other necessities. Groceries carry a lower profit margin compared with general merchandise like clothing. The dollar change profits were also hit by an increased level of so-called shrink, an industry term for inventory loss, including theft. Dollar Tree's shares 
uh, slumped to the lowest level in a year. Meanwhile, Best Buy turned in a first quarter profit that beat Wall Street expectations, while the nation's largest consumer electronics chain continued to wrestle with weak consumer demand for gadgets. But the Minneapolis-based chain predicted on Thursday that the slum, slump in consumer electronics will bottom out by year end, as customers who bought gadgets at the outset of the uh, pandemic will start to update their devices. Best Buy reaffirmed its cautious financial outlook, underscoring continued economic uncertainty. In this environment, customers are clearly feeling cautious and making trade-off decisions as they continue to deal with high inflation, said Best Buy CEO Corey Berry. The bulk of major retailers have reported their quarterly earnings with Nordstrom and Macy's, among a few others, slated to report in the next week or so. So far, the results show that inflation on food and other necessities continues to weigh on shoppers' budgets, forcing them to cut back on discretionary items like clothing and to trade down to cheaper items or less expensive stores. Higher interest rates are also making borrowing on credit cards or taking out a mortgage loan more expensive. In fact, the average long-term U.S. mortgage rate rose this week to its highest level since mid-March, driving up borrowing costs for prospective home buyers facing a housing market that is constrained by a dearth of homes for sale. Earlier this month, Target reported another quarterly profit decline and issued a cautious sales and profit outlook for the current period. Walmart fared better as the low price of the uh, nation's largest retailer continues to draw budget-conscious customers resulting in strong sales. It's also seeing wealthier shoppers trade down to its stores in search of cheaper groceries. Walmart and Dollar Tree both noted that low-income shoppers are under more pressure now as pandemic-era boost in the Supplemental Nutrition Assistance Program, known as SNAP, expired earlier this year, and income tax refunds are smaller this year than last year. Home Improvement to retailers Home Depot and Lowe's both cut their sales outlook earlier this month on slowing demand for home projects. But Best Buy's very uh, struck an optimistic tone, at least for gadgets. The CEO believes the consumer electronic slump will bottom out by the end of the year. The pandemic pushed many people to add many connected devices into their homes, and those devices will need to be updated or replaced. Barry noted that consumers are already starting to come at a higher rate to replenish some of the gadgets. Best Buy also pared down its labor force. The chain has reduced overall headcount by 20% or 25,000 people over the past three years. Most of it has been through attrition. Recently, the company laid off some of its in-store consultants and designers as shoppers moved they're spending online, but it was able to add 2 million more hours for salespeople, uh, boosting customer service, Barry noted. Revenue slipped 11% to $9.47 billion from $10.65 billion in the year-ago period. That was below analyst uh, expectation 
for $9.35 billion. Uh, it, Ralph Lauren reported net income of $32.3 million, or $0.48 cents per share, for its fiscal fourth quarter ended April 1. That compares with $24.4 million, or $0.34 cents a share, in the year-ago period. <clears throat> Adjusted results were $0.90 cents per share. Dollar Tree, which owns Family Dollar, posted profit of $299 million, or $1.35 per share, for the fiscal first quarter ending April 29. That compares with $536.4 million, or $2.37 uh, per share in the same year-ago year period. Thanks, Jim. And now it's time to close up with our dear Abby. I'll read the first. My friend Jim can read the second. Women obsessively monitors former rivals' social media. Dear Abby, I'm a 45-year-old woman who has been dating Ben, 53, for two years. We have known each other for more than 20. He treats me like a queen. Prior to our dating, he had a girlfriend he used to confide in me about. I was very jealous of her. She knew we were friends, so she made a point of posting lots of pictures of their PDAs on his social media since we did not follow each other. Fast forward two years, Abby, I cannot stop obsessing over her. I think about her constantly and compare myself to her. I stalk her social media page. Ben has never given me a reason not to trust him, so why am I still bothered by her? She's moved on and is in another relationship. How can I finally quit obsessing about her and move forward? I don't feel this way about his other exes, but for some reason, this one gets under my skin. I don't want him to find out what I have been doing. I really need help. Any advice? Signed, Insecure in Pennsylvania. Dear Insecure, in light of the fact that your boyfriend's ex is happily in another relationship, this obsession is really a waste of your time and energy. Although you may still feel threatened, the woman is no longer your competition. Whether your issue is insecurity or lack of self-esteem, it's time to wake up and recognize that Ben chose you over her. If you can't accept that and relax, you may need to discuss it with a licensed psychotherapist for help to stop cyberstalking her. She may be a part of your boyfriend's past, but please do not continue making her part of your present. And our second, Dear Abby. Um, Dear Abby, we have three uh, grandchildren, and we feel strongly about the importance of a college education. When the first one graduated from high school, we gave him $500 for graduation, plus an additional $1,500 to be used for college-related expenses. He had already indicated that he was enrolling in college. When the second one graduated, we gave him a $500 graduation gift. Because he had committed to joining the Navy, we assured him that he would also receive $1,500 if and when he enrolled in college. Since then, we have been accused of not respecting his career choice, showing favoritism and other accusations too numerous to list here. Are we ogres for wanting and encouraging our grandchildren to attend college? We'd like your opinion. Well-meaning in the West. Abby writes, Dear well-meaning, Your mistake has been not taking into consideration that your grandchildren are individuals. 
Your second grandson is likely to find his career path as part of his military service. One could argue that you are favoring the grandchild who is following the career path you are biased toward. And from that perspective, it does appear you are playing favorites. You may want to rethink what you are doing. Your Navy-bound grandson may have a need for that money at some point. Thanks, Jim. And one last look at the weather for today. We have a high of 78 degrees and a low of 51. Nice today with plenty of sunshine. Winds east to southeast, 8 to 16 miles per hour. Clear tonight. Winds east to southeast at 6 to 12 miles an hour. Throughout the weekend into the week, we have highs into the mid to high 80s later in the week and low 55 on Saturday and then into the low 60s and very low 70 by Thursday. And that concludes the reading of the Des Moines Register for today, Friday, May 26th. I'm Ben Stein, and my partner at the microphone has been Mr. Jim Hoffman. Earlier, you heard Judith Linden and Dave Busick. You can access IRIS programs on any computer, smartphone, mobile device, or smart speaker like the Amazon Echo or Google Home. If you'd like to learn more, just give us a call at 243-6833 toll-free at 1-877-404-4747, or check out our website, iowaradioreading.org. A special thanks to our broadcast partners, Iowa Public Radio, Iowa PBS, and our music partner, bensound.com. Most of all, thank you for listening to Your Iris, Iowa's first and only radio reading service. <laughs>